The COVID-19 pandemic has impacted nearly every aspect of society and the world of food and dining. Restaurants, bars, and the workers in this industry have felt this very acutely. With today's guest, we take a closer look at how chefs in America have survived and persevered. What does the future look like for the small restaurant or business owner? What role can customers play in keeping workers safe as things reopen? We end by exploring what children may be learning from the pandemic about normalcy and socialization. In areas like where I am, the Bay Area, if I wanted to be able to pay my staff what I believe is a living wage and offer them health insurance, which I think should be sort of basic rights for any working person, you know, I would have to be charging $43 for a chicken sandwich. I think it's a systemic problem and one that's not going to be solved until we have things like universal health care, paid parental leave, better minimum wage, stronger union laws, all these things that help employees and the people who don't have a lot of money compete with the people who do have a lot of money. That's J. Kenji Lopez-Alt, and our conversation is from earlier this year after stay-at-home orders went into effect in the U.S. Kenji is a food writer, a chef, and a restaurant owner. He's the author of two New York Times bestsellers, The Food Lab, which focuses on the science behind beloved American dishes, and his new illustrated children's book called Every Night is Pizza Night, which just came out last month. Kenji is also the chef and partner at Worst Hall, a California beer hall in downtown San Mateo. Welcome to Nerd Immunity, Kenji. Thanks. It's been a, it's been a long time since we've talked. It has been a very long time. It's a pleasure to chat again. So, Kenji, I want to start by just talking about how the pandemic has affected the restaurant industry. Small businesses in general have been hit extremely hard. And your restaurant in downtown San Mateo has gone from, you know, in pre-pandemic times, serving hundreds of customers every night and employing dozens of people to now switching to a stripped down takeout only model. I'd love for you to walk us through that decision and what it has meant for you and your staff. Yeah, I mean, it's affected all of us differently. Um, So, and and actually, we are now no longer doing takeout service. Uh, Sunday night, this past Sunday, uh, was the last night we're doing takeout. And it's mainly because actually the takeout was becoming too popular and um, we started getting a little bit concerned about about the staff, uh, mainly because when things get busy here, um, even though we try and staff really lightly so that people can maintain their distance, when things start to get busy, then, you know, people go back and forth, they pass each other, they kind of sort of start to forget the proximity rules because they're so intent on getting the food out. And so we realized that it it just wasn't a safe situation and it wasn't really fair to our staff. Yeah, that's just a really, really tough choice that... Unfortunately, many small business owners may continue to face through 2021 as things get better and then get worse. But it seems like the decision looms larger and has more of an urgency for restaurants because of how they fall in the essential services category. Honestly, I think it's not fair to, I don't think it's fair to restaurant owners that the government, you know, has deemed restaurants an essential service um, when, uh, you know, I don't think we are an essential service. Like nobody really needs their sausages and sauerkraut. Um, It was kind of placed on restaurant owners to decide like, all right, like, What's this choice you have to make? Like, do you do you close everything, lay off all your staff, um, and you know, and let them figure out for themselves how they're going to make money, or do you open and let them earn some money but put their health at risk? And it's like it's a really, really tough decision. Um, uh, so you know, initially we were like, okay, well, we'll 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 stay open, we'll we'll do takeout service, it'll be stripped down. Um, we obviously won't be able to staff in the same way that we used to, but at least we can give, you know, especially the people who are sort of most vulnerable here, like people who are un- ineligible for unemployment, people who have families. At least we can give them some time to work and to to help them 
help them through this time. But then, you know, we, we realized it's, it's, it's not worth the health risk to the community and the health risk to our staff. So we, we did make that difficult decision to completely stop takeout service. And Kenji, in the meantime, you've come up with a very creative win-win solution to keep your restaurant and part of your staff going so that you can come out on the other side of the pandemic. Tell us about that, going back for a bit to the financial side of it and how, how you're managing that. So as far as, I mean, as far as the financial toll, you know, me personally, like, so I've never taken a salary or made profit on the restaurant. Um, so for me, there's not really much difference. For our staff, obviously, obviously there is. So that was really sort of my primary goal when we shut down was like, all right, like, how do we help our staff get through this? And so, you know, to that end, a lot of what I've been doing is, well, basically, since this all started, like I've been working all my free time when I'm not with my family, I've been, I've been trying to sort of build relationships and fundraising and basically the idea is that we're taking in donations to cook meals that we pack up in boxes and then deliver them to people who need them now so hospital staff people who are sort of food insecure before this all happened at shelters and things like that uh, we deliver meals where they're needed and we take donations to do that so in fact during this interview you might hear like a, a ticket you know the, the machine in the in the restaurant spitting out a ticket and that's someone online ordering a free box meal that they sell that will then produce and uh, bring to someone in need and we're also we've also partnered with a couple of organizations. So Jose Andres's World Central Kitchen, they uh, are working around the world. Um, and locally, there's an organization called Off Their Plate. Um, actually, that works on both both coasts now in a few different cities. Called Off Their Plate that helps pair donors with restaurants and hospitals that need food. And so. It's, it's a better model for us than trying to do takeout. The good thing about the free meals is that there's no sort of dinner rush or lunch rush. It's all boxed meals that we deliver so we can produce them in, in a sort of more organized and orderly pace. People don't have to get frantic and we can staff and basically work around the, around the clock cooking and packing boxes um, that then we'll have either myself or um, hopefully some of our wait staff that has, has also been laid off will be making deliveries and earning money that way. That's fantastic. It's such a smart way of filling a really big need. You know, I was um, just this week listening to a team of contact tracers in Massachusetts and low-income communities, and they were sharing how food insecurity has consistently come up right at the top for all the households that they're working with when it comes to both a need, but also a barrier to their ability to protect themselves by staying home or to safely isolate if uh, they're infected. So providing the support, you know, the way people like yourself and Jose Andres are doing really helps with breaking transmission chains even. And uh, it's such an uplifting example of the community helping the community in this time. You know, part of it is about how I can help the community, but it's, it's also about like, how do I help my staff? A lot of it is sort of practical. It's, I do kind of think of it as really just sort of shifting, you know, pivoting the business. It's like we have to figure out a new way to generate revenue so that we can keep our staff employed. And well, I guess it's sort of a synergistic thing where it's like, I, you know, by helping the community, by helping people who need to eat, I can then also help keep my staff employed um, and help the restaurant, you know, stay afloat, at least, you know, certainly not making any profit right now, but at least come close to staying afloat and, and staying afloat long enough that we can, you know, reopen when, when this is hopefully all over. But, you know, I think chefs and business, small business owners, you're kind of used to thinking that way. It's like you have to sort of optimize for any situation that's thrown at you and you have to figure out creative ways to keep your people working and generate revenue. Because if you don't, you know, if you don't, you fold and, and then you're no good for anybody. If you're, if you're no longer a business, then you're not helping anyone. Absolutely. COVID is really demanding that we embrace the chaos and the uncertainty. And yet I do feel, Kenji, that there's this very tangible sort of link between being able to step up to helping others in this time on one hand and our ability to be 
productive and creative and sane and functional in our own lives and professions, on the other hand, I have found that one can really feed the other in this time. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. You know, and, and you know, for me personally, you know, it's it's been super challenging, but it's also like I, I don't feel like I've been this kind of fired up to do something in, in years. Like, like I just I'm just I don't know, I feel like excited every day to like be able to come in, face new challenges. It's, it's just a lot of adrenaline and then also just a, so like just a huge reward. You know, every time I drop off meals, just seeing like how grateful people are um, talking to talking to customers and seeing like donations come in. Like it's just it's just really, really, you know, like soul satisfying work. And it, and it has me really. Yeah, it has me like fired up to fired up to work, which I haven't felt that way in a while. Wow, that's saying a lot coming from you, Kenji, because I've actually always seen you as someone whose work comes from a place of deep, deep passion. So, Kenji, I want to talk to you about what you see as the future of the restaurant industry in America. So many independent restaurants have already announced that they're closing down permanently in New York City, where I am right now. Midtown is a shell of itself. And for many of these restaurant owners, it took them years to realize their dream of opening uh, their own restaurant. And for the ones that are still open, many of them don't know how long they'll be able to stay open. And one of the fears that food lovers have, of course, is whether this will cause the death of the neighborhood, independent, family-run gourmet restaurant, and an increase in the big chains. And it's a trend we may well see even beyond the restaurant business with bookstores or clothing stores. So we're all asking this question, whenever public life does go back to normal, who will have the money to come out on the other side? How do you see this panning out? Well, yeah, I mean, that... that... <laughs> You know, this this is sort of like I mean, it does feel like it's one of the nails in the coffin. You know, I mean, things were headed that way to begin with. I mean, I, I see it as a, as a as an issue of wealth disparity. You know, especially in areas like where I am, the Bay Area, or, or places like New York. Um, you know, restaurants have never had good margins. You know, like your your profit might ten years ago might have been eight five to eight percent, and now it's probably closer to like two to five percent, five percent if you're lucky. Um, you know, and many restaurants fold all the time. But you know, the the issue is that. In areas with high costs of living, people are willing to pay more for rent. People are willing to pay more for certain things, but they're not willing to pay proportionally more for food. And that makes it really difficult to, first of all, be able to pay your employees enough, like a living wage. You know, most restaurant workers, most service industry workers have to take two jobs um, if they want to support a family or everybody or and, and live in, in houses with many family members together um, with extended family. All right. It's like if, if I wanted to if I wanted to be able to pay my staff what I believe is a living wage and offer them health insurance, which I think should be sort of basic rights for any working person. You know, if I wanted to pay them $30 an hour and offer them health insurance, I would have to be charging like $43 for a chicken sandwich. And already it's like we charge, we charge 16, I think it's 16 now. We, we tried charging 17 and people just complained so much about how expensive it was. So we had to bring it back down to 16. And like, it's not, it's not enough to be able to afford to pay people what they, what they should be paid, you know? Yeah. And I think it follows from that, that if we want to see more small businesses, small business owners making responsible choices, we need to make it a lot easier for them to run the business responsibly and profitably at the same time. I think, you know, it's, it's a systemic problem um, and, I, and, and one that's not going to be solved um, until we have things like, like universal health care, paid leave, paid parental leave, um, paid sick leave, a, a better minimum wage, stronger union laws, um, just all, all these things that help employees and the people who don't have a lot of money compete with the people who do have a lot of money. So, so these are all problems that were, you know, difficult to begin with. Yeah. And I feel like it's particularly unfortunate where you're highlighting about how um, as a small scale employer, if you want to stay profitable, as any employer would, 
you're made to sort of uphold these inequalities that have been baked into our systems and policies instead of be able to challenge them. But it seems what you're also alluding to, Kenji, are the structural barriers to competing with very large chains and the bigger players as a small business owner. Yeah, even you know, over the course of my restaurant career, which has been about 20 years now, you know, I'd say it was probably about 15, 10 to 15 years ago that chefs, you know, high-end chefs started closing their fancy restaurants and focusing on open, opening sort of fast casual restaurants, um, restaurants with lower overhead, restaurants with a less skilled labor pool or, or less demand placed on their labor, and restaurants that can turn do higher volume. So, you know, so basically high-end chefs were doing their versions of you know, Shake Shack McDonald's, like a, like a, like a ch- an idea that could be franchised into a chain um, or, or not franchised necessarily, but that could be evolved into a chain um, because that's really the only way that you can actually make any kind of profit in the re- restaurant industry. And it's, and it's been slowly getting worse. So, so yeah, you know, it's very possible that this could be the nail in the coffin for many, many of those many, many chefs and many small restaurants, independently owned restaurants. And for these larger chains that do have a lot more financial wherewithal to survive the pandemic, what is your sense of whether they're not only doing what they need to be doing to keep running, but to keep running and keep their workers safe and taken care of during this time? Well, yeah, I mean, that, that you know, you know, one of the things that really got to me um, and one of the reasons why that one of the key things that made me, um, me and my partners decide to close business for takeout was the other day, like a week ago, I was making a delivery, a food delivery in the Mission in San Francisco. And um, so one of, my, one of my sous chefs, his wife uh, works at a McDonald's as a cook at a McDonald's. And so I was in the Mission delivering some food and, uh, and there was a McDonald's like across the street. So I decided to like go over, like, like see, all right, like, so how is McDonald's handling this pandemic? And I walked in and it was just like, it was like worst case scenario for transmission. You know, nobody wearing masks, everybody working a couple feet from each other, walking around back and forth like a, a packed kitchen. People, you know, they had tape on the floor for lines, but nobody was paying attention to them. And it's just like, you know, the it's, it's, not, it's not a question of if, but it's like how many of those people are going to get sick and then how many of them are going to die just because whatever McDonald's franchise owner or maybe, you know, maybe McDonald's Corporation itself owns that restaurant and their employees don't have a choice. You know, it's like, it, it, they're, they're working they're working minimum wage jobs already and they have bills to pay they're living paycheck to paycheck they can't afford not to work there so if you tell them hey you're gonna have to come in here and work i don't care that you know you're almost certainly going to get coronavirus because if any one of them has it then pretty much all of them are probably going to get it at some point like you know it, it, it's like to me it's just like how is it okay that we're deciding it's okay that we're risking these people's lives um, because someone needs to sell some more French fries. You know, it's like, it's insane to me that, that that's the decision that it comes down to and that that kind of decision is allowed to be made. Um, you know, and, and it's because workers don't have any rights. You know, this is why, you know, I, I admire people, well, definitely people like Jose Andres who are tackling this problem from one side, but also people like, you know, Tom Colicchio, who is a very strong advocate. You know, he's a policy wonk and he, and he, he spends a lot of time in Washington and he's trying to fight this on a more systemic political level, which... Um, which is something that it's difficult. I think, you know, a lot of chefs kind of have their head, you know, nose to the grindstone, head buried in their work, and they don't think about the, the bigger picture. So it's really admirable when I see a chef that actually does think about the pic- bigger picture and think about like, all right, like what are, it's not enough to complain about things and not enough to fight your own personal fight. Like we have to have representation in the government. We have to lobby the government to make these changes that are going to allow us to pay our workers what they should be paid. It's, it's a very good illustration, I think, of why, um, you know, of one of the basic failings of pure capitalism, right? It's like, even if I wanted to do these things, my choice is either stay open and do the best I can, provide my workers with the best best service I can, you know, with the best pay that I can and the best 
benefits that I can and stay open or, you know, pay them what I think they deserve to be paid, what I think they should be paid. And the restaurant closes in a month and then nobody's, you know, then nobody benefits and they have to go work for someone who won't treat them as well. Right. And it's such a hairy problem to solve, but certainly we have to start by breaking it down um, as you are and making it a lot more known and understood and subsequently challenged. It's, yeah, it's, it's a real, real difficult problem to solve. And I think, and, you know, and I think it's also one that a lot of very well-meaning people, you know, including myself before I became a small business owner, a lot of very well-meaning people like don't understand the difficulties of navigating until, until you've actually had to own a small business and look at the numbers and see and, and figure out how you're going to treat your staff well and, and try and treat them the right way, given all the restrictions that you have and, and customer demands and all these different things that factor into it. So switching gears a little bit to the customer side, the consumer of food side of this, um, we went through a period of fear in the earlier part of the pandemic about whether it's safe to consume food made by other people and the obsessive disinfection of groceries and takeout food. I certainly don't miss that period of anxiety. And you were among the food writers that wrote very well-researched comprehensive pieces on this, showing that there is no evidence that food is a vector for COVID-19. But can you now also touch a bit on how you'd like people to think about this as customers, you know, how to think of restaurants, of eating out again, uh, particularly in the context of, you know, supporting small businesses and making choices around this. And I want to add the very important caveat here that I'm not talking about indoor dining, um, but about outdoor dining, takeout and delivery, because I think it's pretty clear now that there is no safe way to do indoor dining, particularly in areas with high community transmission. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, basically what you just said. So, you know, whether you whether you get food from takeout or for delivery or buy it at the supermarket and cook it at home, um, the biggest risk factor is coming into contact with other people. You know, for, from from a restaurant standpoint, the thing that you should also consider is, are you putting the restaurant workers at risk by making them work and demanding them, you know? And so on, on one hand, it's like you do want to support your local restaurants because they need to they need to keep their business afloat. Um, but you want to make sure that they're also working to keep their employees safe um, and that they're that they're actually able to keep their employees safe. In that sense, actually, it feels like a great, uh, very unique opportunity to support businesses that are prioritizing worker well-being and safety. Yeah, absolutely. And, and if you're not sure, you know, I think most business owners, uh, responsible business owners are, are pretty vocal about the steps they're going to, you know, the steps, if they are taking steps, they'll be vocal about them. So, you know, call up and ask what, what are your safety protocols or go just peek in through the window and see what they're doing. Are people wearing masks? Is there, are they keeping their distance? Are, are they making sure that customers are standing six feet apart from, from each other? Um, all those things. Yeah. So going a little bit into the personal space, Kenji, you're the father of a toddler. I think for anyone that follows your work online, it's very difficult to not see your daughter Alicia show up in some way, you know, her little hands and images that you post of food. And I'm curious about how parenting a three-year-old has been in 2020 in a world that feels so peculiar at times to, um, you know, even us as adults. And then you wonder how children are perceiving it and the inputs that they're getting. Well, first of all, we've we've had to try and figure out like what the right balance is of how much to talk about the virus. Um, because, you know, on the one hand, we, we are always honest with her and we want her to really understand what's going on in the world and why, we, why we're making certain decisions and why we do things. Um, but, you know, on the other hand, it's like she's three years old and she's at this phase of where, you know, kids that age are sort of developing an idea of what normal is. 
you know, um, and because they don't really know what normal is before that. Um, like every every situation is kind of new to them. So it's like, do we want her to be in this situation where she thinks that it's normal to be afraid to go near other people or it's normal to be afraid to go outside and touch things? And so we've had to kind of balance that. And, and, and it's also like, you know, talking about people dying, um, people dying from the virus and why we have to be careful about it. Um, do we want her to think it's normal for, you know, for you to be to always be afraid of, you know, old people dying um, like and, and so that that's been a sort of a difficult balance to strike. You know, and the, the other part is socialization. It's like she's at an age now where it's sort of really important for her to start socializing with other kids. And when she was born, I quit all of my, my projects for the first year so that I could you know focus on raising her and spend a lot of time with her. So it, it had actually been pretty difficult to get her to really start socializing with other kids, even in, even in like preschool, to get her to start, you know, understand that it's not just her and Papa all the time that she'll, she, there's like other people in this world that she has to interact with. And so she was just starting to get good at that. And now I don't know what it's going to be like when she goes back to school, you know, cause now it's, it's been months of her again, just her and me and, and, and mama, you know, it's like, um, we have, we have neighbors that we're friends with, with kids, but they can't hang out. Like sometimes we go to the empty parking lot and like, we'll play in different corners of the parking lot and just like talk to each other across the parking lot. But you know, it's very different from actual socialization. So who knows how it's affecting her? <laughs> kids are kids are one long science experiment. I feel like, and and you just have, you don't really know what the results are going to be, but you do your best. So true, Kenji. I'm wondering if you miss the restaurant. You know, your customers, the atmosphere. What helps to fill that gap for you right now in your life? Yeah, I mean, I yeah, I certainly miss it. You know, the, the restaurant for me. You know, my, my main job is writing. The restaurant is really more my partners. You know, I manage the kitchen and the recipes and, and all that stuff. As a business, it's really more his baby. But, you know, for me, the, the great thing about the restaurant is the customer connection. Um, you know, so I loved coming in here on like a Thursday or Friday night. I bring my computer sometimes and, and work either at one of the tables downstairs or up in the mezzanine. Um, so I'll work on writing while I'm at the restaurant it's just so I can kind of keep an eye on things. But I love like coming here and seeing families coming and people having fun. And, you know, we have like these big communal tables. So people chat with their neighbors and, and it's just like a really good spirit. So that I really missed. But, you know, what's kept me happy and kept me motivated is the, the free meal delivery boxes that we've been doing. Because if anything, like people are more grateful and it, and it gives you a sort of stronger sense of community to, to know that like there are these people you know, well, there are definitely people in need, um, but then there are also the people who are working at these shelters and who are working at these hospitals who are all part of your community. And, and we're all sort of working together to help each other and make sure that everyone is everyone in the community is OK and has their basic needs met. So, you know, if anything, that's more satisfying than seeing, you know, the, the, the families come and enjoy the food at the restaurant, like seeing the food going out um, to helping helping these people who are trying to help the community. Yeah, that keeps me happy and keeps me sane and keeps me motivated. That's awesome. Yeah, thank you. You know, I, I just realized as we were talking, like, you you were there, like, when I when I think I, like, very first started my food career, like, when I was still cooking at, at, at I was cooking for you guys at the fraternity house. That's right. That was, like, my first cooking job. <laughs> still one of my best cooking jobs. Yeah, it was one of my best eating jobs. <laughs> yeah, those are, those are good times. <laughs> Different times. That was J. Kenji Lopez-Alt, who in addition to his first book, The Food Lab, also has an illustrated children's book that came out last month called Every Night is Pizza Night, about a girl named People and her cooking and eating experiments with her friends. It's a story about open-mindedness, community, and family, 
And right now, if you buy either of Kenji's books through bookshop.org, 100% of the sales commissions go towards providing free meals to those in need and another 10% to independent bookshops across the U.S. Books sold through bookshop.org have already raised over $7 million for independent bookstores. Thanks for listening. I'm Sabah Gul, and I'll see you next time.